0: Biblical drama, I suggested, as a really good way in, but then we could look in detail at particular characters, like Bezalel and Aholiab, for example, on whom the Spirit of God rested to do their uh, technological and craft work. We could look at themes within the scriptures. Um, in that uh, panel session, the notion of rest was raised. We can't talk about time in modernity and post-modernity without thinking about the Uh, rhythms that are in the biblical scriptures relating to work and rest. They're a crucial part of our our understanding of temporality in uh, a Christian frame. Uh, I think one of the most significant um, ways in to thinking about all these areas is to think about the Eucharist. Jesus gave us something to do that relates to what Jesus came to do. We love discussing theories of the atonement. Jesus did not give us theories of the atonement. Jesus gave us something to do, a ritual meal within which we would remember him, why he came, until he comes. And I want to introduce that Eucharistic idea when I'm talking about microwaves. But it's another way in. Eucharist gets us into Trinitarian theology. It gets us into the materiality of the world. It gets us into our daily dependence on uh, physical food for physical bodies. It gets us into every conceivable area of Christian discipleship. And I think that's why Jesus gave us the Eucharist as the central thing we do. Anyway, that's another way in, and I think it's a really uh a really good way in. Um, Another way in, rather than just trying to read the device, is to try to read the device in terms of the activity that it claims to support. Read Albert Borgman on this. He writes about focal things and focal activities. Very interesting stuff. But just a simple point. Let's relate to the activities. We're going to talk about microwaves now. What's the activity for which we uh, use microwaves? What's it connected with? Eating. Okay, that's pretty basic. Eating. Do the scriptures talk to us about eating? Sure they do. Tons of biblical material on eating. So let's think about the activity and what that activity should be all about and judge the device in the light of what we know about the activity. Another really good way into thinking about these themes. And we're all involved in eating. We wouldn't be here if we weren't involved in eating. It's not an option for us as living creatures. Although how we do it varies tremendously. Eating, both good and bad, occurred in the garden, the Garden of Eden you seen those restaurants that are called the Garden of Eden? Wonderful stuff. Eating or not eating is involved in that most central ritual, um, the Lord's Supper. But it's also involved in uh, rituals in Judaism. Um, we also have eating to look forward to as Christian believers. No wonder some chocolate makers advertise their uh, confections as heavenly they've got a point. Eating usually involves preparation, which often means cooking. So from the front porch uh, barbecue uh, of student houses to the sizzling walks of Southeast Asia or uh, delectable fragrances from those uh, hot bagel houses in Montreal, food is fired, Food, food is cooked one way or another. And we enjoy what is cooked. If you're like me, then just the thought of the smell of the bagels in a Montreal bagelry make me salivate. Sometimes, though, we need food in a hurry. Well, we think we do. We can't wait for others because we have another earlier appointment. What do we do? Well, we pop something in the microwave. You've probably done it. This is fast food at home. Cosmopolitan magazine in nineteen fifty eight predicted that one day every meal would be cooked in a microwave. In nineteen fifty eight they hadn't been around very long, so it was a pretty confident prediction. Uh, in Canada, households that have a microwave oven increased from ten point two in nineteen eighty two to eighty six point three in nineteen ninety seven. The figure for the United States is over 90%. They're convenient, energy efficient, and, of course, fast. They're ideal for the 24-7 busyness of much contemporary North American life. They fit our lifestyles. Culture and technology go together. Now, of course, the microwave oven itself didn't come about as the result of somebody trying to find a better, faster way to cook. During the Second World War, a couple of scientists invited the magnetron, produces microwaves. Installing magnetrons in Britain's radar system, the microwaves were able to spot Nazi warplanes on their way to bomb the British Isles. The idea of using microwave energy to cook food was accidentally discovered, so we are told, by Percy LeBaron Spencer of the Raytheon company when he found that radar waves had melted a candy bar in his pocket. Go figure. Experiments showed that the microwave heating could raise the internal temperature of many foods far more rapidly than in a conventional oven. The first Raytheon commercial microwave was the 1161 radar range. Marketed in 1954. Rated at 1600 watts, it was so large, like a kitchen fridge, and expensive, two to three thousand dollars American, I say that because they're worth more than Canadian ones, that it was practical only for restaurant and institutional use. Now, Lots of issues are raised by microwaves. And you remember I said this morning, we can talk about impacts and dangers and whatnot. That's one thing. And then there are the deeper issues. Issues raised by them? Well, of course, lots of health and safety issues. Uh, Put microwave into Google and uh, you get all sorts of warnings from uh, all sorts of government departments and, and whatnot about these things. Potential and actual downsides are manifold. Uh, back in 89, the Lancet reported that heating milk formula in microwaves altered the chemical structure. Researchers G. Lubeck et al. wrote that such changes can lead to, quote, structural, functional, and immunological damage, and that one compound thus produced became neutrogenic, uh, In 1992, Stanford uh, scientists reported that human breast milk, when reheated in the microwave, loses some of its abilities to fight infection. Also, the E. coli bacteria grew 5 to 18 times faster in microwaved cow's milk. There may be some issues that we have to think about here. Um, I'll leave you with those, and you can check the sites yourself. But while it's important to be informed about the physical side effects of our gadgets, which may end up being an argument against using them, I'm more concerned with the social and spiritual health of these things as uh, we go on. Let's just put them in a, a broader frame. From the 1920s to the 1960s, it's been argued. Almost no change occurred in the time spent on housework by women in the United States. And you'll note that that is precisely the decades in which the largest number of household labor-saving devices was produced and marketed. Hmm. The U.S. household may have been industrialized between 1860 and 1960. This is the argument of Ruth Schwartz Cowan, But this didn't mean that housework was systematically eliminated. Far from it or that the home shifted from being a center of production to a center of production, as some others have suggested. Domestic technology may raise the productivity of the household, but it also accompanied the declining use of domestic servants and also the invention of the housewife, which generated more work for women. Also, Mechanization happens in private single family homes where some tasks such as laundry were previously outsourced. The tendency of domestic technologies in general is to reinforce traditional gender roles. They privatize work so that they hinder any possible reallocation of tasks. Men still tend to do non-routine tasks, but at intervals, leaving the routine ones for women, whose work, as we know, is never done. If there's a dishwasher, for example, this is American research again, if there's a dishwasher, men assume that the task has been covered, and so withdraw, leaving what needs to be done to women. Women may end up not doing less, but actually doing more when these machines are in place. This may also be seen in increased time spent in childcare and shopping, since delivery systems declined and supermarkets built cars to ensure that people, i.e. women, do their own delivery. Well, why has this all happened? Partly, Cowan suggests, because Increased material standards of living were made possible by domestic technologies. But it's also the case that women and men value the privacy and autonomy of the home. They'll choose the washing machine over the laundry and the stove over eating out. Of course, you can also argue that the alternatives became systematically less available during the 20th century. It may be that communal childcare is on the political agenda But public laundries, shared cooking facilities, anyone ever come across those as political issues? And what do we want the microwave for? Well, it's handy, isn't it? Very handy. What do we mean by handy? It's convenient. What do we mean by convenient? In the 21st century, convenience now means control over scheduling. The word convenient used to have the connotation of ease of use. In that labor-saving device period in the middle of the 20th century, it had to do with saving time. But in the 21st century, uh, we could argue, I think, that the idea of convenience has more to do with the coordination of activities. It's control over scheduling. Convenience also once had to do with space. In the 18th century, it had to do with the layout of rooms in a home. Indoor plumbing and hot and cold running water. Reduce toil, increase sanitation, save time. Here are some things that we not just rely on, but most of us are pretty grateful for. But now, along with te- text messaging, phone answering services and freezers, microwaves offer timing convenience. You can prepare and eat a meal at short notice. You can make a meal while also attending to other chores. In a world where, as many, many studies have shown, people tend to work more to be able to spend more, and we're thinking primarily, again, of North America and uh, Western Europe. Actual time spent with family and friends is therefore doubly pressed. Time not spent at work is consumed by the activity of consumption. Arlie Hoschild takes this further by observing that as people spend more time at work, their domestic lives become more stressful. And thus, being at work can be seen as more attractive than being at home. This is uh, American work... um, Harley Hostile is a leading uh, American sociologist. So you try to manage home life with all the conveniences you can find because of the time squeeze. The obsession with convenience is the mark of the society of the schedule. The obsession with convenience is the mark of the society of the schedule. We have to organize. Hoschild says that women squeeze one activity between two others, checking email and phone messages while the dishwasher is running, making cell phone calls while bathing the kids. Where did the idea of multitasking originate? Well, the microwave, along with the freezer, allows for new kinds of time management, both of seasons and days. You can plan menus, you can plan those supermarket trips more conveniently. But the freezer and the market wave, uh, sorry, the microwave, not only help us to cope with the fragmentation and compression of time, we don't have to nip out to the store if we have something in the freezer, they also bind us into wider systems of out of town supermarkets, frozen food producers, global transport systems, and agricultural practices. We're ironically more bound to the systems from which we attempt to be free, which ties in with what I was saying earlier about idolatry. If we elevate certain artifacts to an inappropriate level, expect great things of them, they may in turn start to shape our experiences, our outlooks. They bind us into their schedules when we think that we're scheduling more freely. They blind us to alternatives and recreate us in their image. And among other things, this may affect our sociality. Back to the relationships question. As Elizabeth Shove says, she's a British uh, sociologist of domestic technology, contemporary valuing of convenience relates to an increasing intensity of small tasks. And to a reliance on individualized modes of coordination, this goes hand in hand with the weakening of a shared socio-temporal order. Now she's not a Christian believer, but she has got a handle on some important aspects of our relational lives. Domestic technologies, Ruth Schwartz-Cowan suggests, are designed for loan and loving housewives. Well, are there any alternatives to all this? Microwaves are just part of the convenience culture that's closely connected with the fast food fad that has sucked the world into its drive-thrus and plastic smiles. It reflects the priorities of our speeded up world that have everything to do with making and spending more and more money, consuming things that become obsolete faster and, of course, adding them to the already existing piles of toxic trash around the planet. As far as eating is concerned, it also connects with speeding up of other processes, such as fast agriculture. Chemical fertilizers and pesticides, intensive feeding, growth hormones, genetic modification. They're all intended to increase productivity and produce bigger and faster. Carl Honori, for example, tells us that two centuries ago, it took five years for an average pig to reach 130 pounds. Now, it hits 220 pounds at six months. And is slaughtered before it loses its baby teeth. The realization that fast food may not be the best food has dawned on many others, especially towards the closing years of the 20th century. This became more important. The slow food movement began in Italy. Now I was talking with somebody about uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant approaches to uh, this business, which I hadn't really started thinking through, but here's an interesting uh, notion. Why did the slow food movement begin in Italy? Hmm. Uh, Well, it began there specifically after uh, McDonald's opened a uh, store on the Spanish Steps in Rome, 1986. That was the real challenge. McDonald's on the Spanish Steps. What does the slow food movement do? Well, it celebrates fresh, seasonal food, artisanal production, old recipes, sustainable farming, leisurely dining with friends and family, and the sheer pleasure of eating. Yeah, perhaps the old recipes is a bit nostalgic, I don't know. Um, There are some very good old recipes that have stood the test of time, however. I don't think it's only nostalgic. Slow food has its environmental aspects, opposition to genetic modification and the promotion of organics and biodiversity. They're also for what they call virtuous globalization. Yet another example of the stupidity of talking about anti-globalization movements. I don't believe that there is a single such thing in the world as an anti-globalization movement. Even better reason for not lumping them in with terrorists when you're uh, looking for them at the border, too. But anyway, that's a side point. Virtuous globalization, where the export of good foods that travel well is not discouraged. But the high speed, high turnover of the fast food industry is definitely opposed by slow foodies. They distaste the, uh, sorry, they disdain the tasteless and unhealthy, homogeneous food that is uh, churned out at certain um, outlets. It's working, you know. The slow food movement has actually had an impact. They call it, you know, the gastronomic green piece. But it has had some has had some interesting effects. If you look in the supermarket today, you will find that there are indeed more and more organic uh foods there. Local foods are coming back. We had our first Food from the Fields festival last year in Kingston, Ontario. And there's a whole new cooperative of uh, local farmers who are encouraging Kingstonians to buy locally and not depend on long distance transportation for food when it's in season. Agreed? Uh, like you, we have a bit of a, you know, problem between January and um, March, but at other times we can buy our food locally. So it's, it's, it's interesting that these are having an effect. Um, I suppose there's a sense in which I'm kind of connected with uh, slow food. I'm not an apologist of it, but perhaps I sound like it sometimes. I love to cook dinner in the uh, walk or in the oven. It's For me, it's relaxation and creativity at the end of the day. Um, I'm the maker of dinner at home. And uh, tonight we are going to Moosewood Restaurant. Now, Sue and I have never been to Moosewood. But for years and years and years, we have used the moosewood recipe books. So it's a little pilgrimage that we're going to take, and um, it was, you know, it wasn't what made me agree to the invitation, but it sure was uh, a good aspect of it. And they have marvelously global recipes in the uh, cookbooks. We, Cambodian, Chilean. Uh, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Greek, Hungarian, um, Italian, Japanese, Mexican, Indian, and so on and so forth. And a lot of that I learned from those Moosewood books. Of course, they are cut down on the time somewhat, it's true, there's a fast aspect to them. Uh, You wouldn't find a Malay or um, (coughs) Vietnamese person taking as short a time as I do on preparing foods that is supposedly related to their cuisine. But there's um, it's a sort of compromise. And they can be used with a combination of local foods and, of course, those very important spices that surely come from a long way away. Okay, you've been wanting me to try to bring together these worlds of reading our everyday devices with reading our scriptures. And uh, how do the word and the world come together. I'm going to make a few comments, and as I say, uh, for this one, and partly because it relates so nicely, we're going to relate it in the end to the Eucharist and to uh, eating. The technologies may not be neutral, neither is my evaluation of them. Once again, I'll just say, disagree with whatever you like. I'm just trying to challenge you to think. Some of what I say might make sense in an intuitive kind of way. Some of it may not. But do we have grounds for reflecting on food and cooking and eating that originate with what uh, C.S. Lewis calls the deeper magic from the dawn of time? The deeper magic from the dawn of time is sure what we need in an era of acceleration and compression. Lauren Wilkinson, a friend of ours who uh, teaches at Regent College in Vancouver, rightly observes that food can be helpfully considered in terms of feeding, feasting, and fasting. And that's what he thinks of as the spirituality of food. Feeding reminds us that we have a lot in common with animals, Uh, (coughs) and indeed for non-vegans that uh, we have an interdependent relationship with animals in the food chain. Food has bloody and earthy origins that are hard to evade but easy to forget if we buy frozen packaged supermarket foods. We're connected relationally, again, with all other creatures within the divine economy. The connections are literally ones of life and death, in this case. Theirs and ours are at stake. Our createdness involves us in this web, implicates us in this intricate web of relations. Feeding also reminds us of our basic needs. We're dependent creatures who need food to survive. And in a world where there are millions of people who go to bed hungry every night, and millions of others who go to bed overfed, there's also a question of distribution here. We may rightly pray, give us today our daily bread, because this reminds us that we rely on a caring God. But we also have to recall that the final evaluation of our lives will be on the basis of who we fed when we saw them hungry. And a feasting is a vital aspect of humanness too. Right from the start, it was indeed a garden of eating. The stuff was good for food and enjoyable. We're bound for a feast too—the lamb's wedding banquet. En route through the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, many references are there to the joys of eating. And then Jesus himself picked and ate. Uh, corn kernels in the field, orchestrated this massive mountain picnic, and barbecued fresh fish on the beach. A communion is a feast of remembrance and celebration, too, as is Passover for the Jews. And feasting has deeply theological overtones and engages every sense and hints at hospitality, where others are invited to the table and where everyone is face-to-face. There's a logic of superabundance in feeding that fits nicely with the idea of a God who spills over our compact categories, Um, and with the love and joy that overflows in the life of Jesus. What is our feast-centered shape of living? David Ford asks that question. What is our feast-centered shape of living? There's a celebratory spirituality of food in our scriptures. But what of the third of the trio? Feeding, feasting, fasting. Lauren Wilkinson wisely points out that fasting belongs with food and feasting in a world that is less than perfect and where relationships are often distorted. Of course, as he says, feasting can turn to gluttony, and fasting to inappropriate self-denial. Consumerism relates to the one, and anorexia, and bulimia, and so on, with the other. Again, Jesus fasted at the most significant points in his life. At the start of his mission... Uh, what we celebrate as Lent, fasting also resonates with relationships. Isaiah says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Or God says through Isaiah, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? What is it? What is the fasting? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. That's the fasting. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and break every yoke? Paul 2, writing to Corinth, berates the church for allowing communion meals to degenerate into selfish feasts. This is a travesty, he says. It's not the Lord's Supper at all. You go ahead without waiting for others. One gets hungry, another gets drunk. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? people may be made hungry because of our feasting. As Lauren Wilkinson says, if we say yes to God's feast, we may also have to say no, as we should have done in Eden. That may be no to certain kinds of food technologies or farming practices or food relationships. Food is directly articulated with justice in a hungry world. And we can't pretend that our comfortable stomachs have no connection with the malnutrition of others. The food banks in our own city at home, Bread for the World Internationally, Food from the Fields in, again, Ontario in our region, all give hints about choices where we have to say yes and where we have to say no. In the end, though, true spirituality is first to acknowledge our dependence. Give us this day our daily bread. But then to recall that we don't live by bread alone. It's God's word that keeps everything, including us, going. Fasting reminds us that food, though good, isn't everything. God gives life, and paradoxically, God gives most profoundly in death, in the cross of Christ. That death restores us to life. And to realize again our humanness and our dependence on God, which can be expressed in the very context of feeding, feasting, and fasting. Our meals remind us where we come from, who we are, what's wrong with the world, and with us, and where we're going. Meals are really important. And that is the context in which we need to be thinking about things like microwaves. They're implicated in some negative aspects of today's world. Can they be involved appropriately in it too? The Israelites were told that one day their pots would be labeled holy to the Lord, inscribed on the pots. What does that mean? In Zechariah 14, a future is envisaged where instead of rebellion, there will be a situation of total consecration to God. At that time, not merely the bowls used for priestly rituals, but every bowl will be declared holy to the Lord. They're kitchen technologies, holy to the Lord. From the bells fixed to horses to locate them when they've strayed, to the cooking pots in the kitchen, the things of everyday life would one day be part of that wholehearted consecration of people to God. And at the same time, unholy things would be excluded from the community. Same chapter. So presumably, if some items in everyday use could not be included as holy, they would have to be abandoned. Microwave ovens may be usable for certain purposes, or jettisoned, or perhaps refashioned for other uses. Can they be holy to the Lord? At the end of the day, eating, microwaves in the context of eating, and eating in the context of, well, broader life, questions. Jesus came to give us shalom, peace, shalom, I leave with you. Came to give us life, life in it all its fullness. Shalom, you'll recall, refers to peace in a strong sense of things being held together in harmony, of the triangle of mutual relations between God, earth, and the human community. Not just non-conflicting relationships, but productive, satisfying, fulfilling, flourishing relationships. The Christian good news is that we come to acknowledge that God is good to all, sending rain on the just and unjust alike. And also to start to experience shalom personally and communally as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Shalom isn't procured easily. Its cost was that cruel crucifixion of the utterly innocent one. But the suffering of sinners and also the creaking creation itself is centered in that cross. In an impassioned argument that starts with the liberating work of Christ and the Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation's destiny is bound up with ours, inextricably. It's going to be liberated from its bondage to decay, as part of the same process that produces the glorious freedom of the children of God. Right now, fractured and fragmented, and further dislocated by the compressing of time and space, creation groans. Human beings groan along with it, as we await what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. They're being brought back and brought into their original intended state. Right now, we're in a kind of in-between situation. Victory has been won at Calvary, but there's this huge mopping-up operation to be done to complete the work. We still feel acutely the effects of the rebellion and its consequent idolatry, injustice, conflict, including in the world of technologies. We struggle with the brokenness of a world that was intended to express relationality, individualization of relationships that were meant to be social in the image of their Trinitarian maker. Technology doesn't cause us to drift apart, but it may be a contributory factor, again, as we were saying in that earlier session, uh, the panel session this morning, it may contribute. In each of the cases that I've been giving you, certainly individualization and privatization is an outcome, whether intended or not. In the case of the motor car, in the case of the cell phone, in the case of the uh, microwave. And we could go on to look at other areas too. I think television, um, digital cameras, computers, uh, each of these can also be thought of in analogous ways. These things uh, exist within, but also have effects on our understanding of time and space. We've come to experience the world as one place. And we've also found the means to move between places with greater facility. This means, paradoxically, that it's often hard to arrange things so that we can be together with others in the same place at the same time. Like for a meal. Time-space compression doesn't mean that the world is more easily grasped and handled. To the contrary. We can do so many more things, more quickly, more easily. But it doesn't mean that we have less work or less stress. Indeed, we now talk about 24-7 lifestyles, which is, uh, which in practice means that any time of the day can be colonized for work. Cell phones make us constantly available. Email enables asynchronous communication. Workers come home and some workplaces feature domestic types of activity. We've speeded things up with the effect that everything seems more transient, stable, only until further notice. Well, what do we do with all this? Most of our technological artifacts and systems are not, in my view, hopelessly idolatrous or uh, incapable of reshaping to other ends. There may be some that are incapable of shaping to other ends. I think of nuclear warheads. For example, I can think of no godly use for a nuclear warhead. But there may be others that are transformable to godly purposes. If pots can be holy to the Lord, well, can microwaves, can freezers, in what contexts, how used, how developed? If swords can be beaten into plowshares, can contemporary technologies of war, greed, or sheer speed be turned to other purposes as well? those things that have been made that are perhaps out of kilter with God's purposes and that continue on their derailed path, how far can they be considered as candidates for what Jesus is reconciling through his work on the cross, restoring to their rightful place within a relational universe? One of our uh, Canadian technology writers is Ursula Franklin metallurgist at the uh, University of Toronto. She's now um, uh, quite elderly. She's in her 80s. Um, but she's always been a stalwart uh, Quaker and uh, critic from a, a sort of general uh, Christian perspective, or at least a perspective that resonates a lot with that of um, Christian believers. And she talks about redemptive technologies, by which she means several things. She speaks out against merely technological attitudes towards technology, saying that they always need to be placed in that larger context of fairness or justice, uh, equality, and so on. And she talks about globally livable habitats as being what the real world of technology should be aiming for. She should, suggests checklists for the appropriateness of certain kinds of technologies. There's a little book called The Real World of Technology, uh, that is uh, well worth a read. Um, she also tries to encourage people to study what does work, not just to make negative critiques of existing systems. She also stresses, and uh, she does so especially as a woman, I'll have to read the book for, to uh, understand that, but she does so especially, she stresses the... Uh, requirement to look at technology from the points of view of the end user. I haven't talked about it this afternoon, but the majority of domestic technologies that are used more by women than men are actually designed by men, and many of the issues that arise with them uh, are frustrations that relate to kind of masculinist, uh, gadget-oriented technologies rather than the tasks that have to be performed in a kitchen. What does the Bible say? Is there any clue that the work of Jesus also refers to technological artifacts, to humankind's cultural creations, as I've been suggesting? If there were such a clue in relation to any point in that biblical drama, then surely we would be warranted in saying that, yes, there is good news for technology. The story of the city and Tower of Babel clearly counts as an example of technological rebellion and idolatry in which we see approach to technology as having no limits. But there are also hints that technology finds its place in the future plans of God. In Isaiah, again, we read that the ships of Tarshish, yes, Tarshish, that byword for idolatrous attitudes, will be brought into the city of God. What are the ships of Tarshish doing in the city of God? Rich Mao, uh, president of Fuller Seminary, has uh, a fine little biblical study on Isaiah 60, in which he suggests why those ships of Tarshish are in the city of God as portrayed in that chapter of I- Isaiah. Of course, in God's city, uh, we have to recognize that it is just that, God's city. We can't just build it ourselves. Uh, in a green and pleasant land, as some Victorian Britons imagined, or in the colonial fields of the New World, as some early Americans thought. But it has elements of continuity with the present, too. All sorts of stuff will be there. Read the chapter for yourself. Animal, vegetable, and mineral. Flocks, lumber, fr- precious metals. The technological, commercial, and even military might of the nations will be gathered in that city. But... And it's a very big but. They are now portrayed as having been transformed for new purposes. The rams minister. Ships' cargoes are for the name of the Lord. Lebanon's lumber will beautify the sanctuary. So while the former function of those ships will perish as they're purified, some new functions will emerge. Spears to pruning hooks the idea of redemptive technologies doesn't seem to be so far off the mark. A couple of other things I'll just say right in closing. Someone asked what sorts of things we can do practically and uh, in our everyday lives. Churches, Christian communities of all sorts can be Pilot plants of paradise, and I'm intending the word paradise in the way that it is used in the uh, biblical scriptures, Ezekiel thirty-seven, uh, Revelation two, and so on. Democratic votes for what I've been talking about are unlikely. I don't think we'll be able to get popular movements to uh, work on what I've been talking about, except in some cases. It isn't going to come from a change of heart in the global technology corporations of our world. That's not too much to pray for, but I can't see it coming overnight. God's new age will dawn at the right time. Until then, those with ears to hear the invitation of Jesus, eyes to see where God's purposes are leading, and the willingness to join the project that, uh, n- that only the Spirit gives, have the chance to contribute. If we aim to do everything for the glory of God, then that must include technology. I see no instruction in Scripture that says, do everything except your technological activities to God's glory. There are many faithful ways forward. One area, I think, is by putting into practice now the principles of a coming era. Wouldn't it make a huge difference if Christians actually set an example by our use of appropriate and sustainable technologies? Or if we actually had car-sharing pools in our churches? That's we were committed to, in some areas, going slower rather than always faster, to be doing things socially rather than individualistically, to saying no at certain points to certain of the devices apparent demands on our lives. If Christians are disciples, students of Jesus, then this inter- entails learning to follow his ways in all areas of life, which must mean, among other things, technological discipleship. It begins with technological repentance. I suggested to you that devices and desires that we may have followed too much uh, are a starting point. A metanoia, a turning away from misguided technologies, and then a relearning of our true technological priorities. So let's start thinking about things in a new light. Not the artificial light of global consumerism, the fast-forward futures of short-term investors, not the light of technology for its own sake, or technology merely to enhance my capacities. Let's think about things, our cars and our computers and our microwaves and digital cameras and all these things, as people who see them as distantly echoing God's good earth. Twisted by rebellious purposes, yes. With idolatrous tendencies, yes but also as possibly redemptive, related to the renewal of all things, in which Jesus, as I say, will return to the center as the light of this world. Amen. I, I don't know if I need to help you Carl. That's a great commentary i i, I love it um, the uh The question is far too long for me to repeat for the um recording um but uh, it has to do with the connection between consuming uh desires consummation, where this is going and the the desires that uh lead us to want to use certain artifacts in 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 particular ways at all um but i I, I just agree with you. I think that was uh, that was a lovely commentary. Um, you know, I started off by pointing out, right at the beginning of the day, I mean, at 9.30, um, how we take things for granted and how easily we just assume that this is the way things are, that you use the cell phone and you get in the car and you pop things in the microwave. And in a sense, all day I've been trying to say, okay, let's just stop before we do that and say... This isn't something I should just be taking for granted. Why am I doing this? Why have I let myself get to the situation where I feel I have to use the microwave? I have no alternative than to pick up the cell phone. And it's that's the question. What are the desires that we're trying to fulfill? And they may not be ones that we've articulated. Unless Cornell is awfully different from Queen's University, even in a university context that hasn't fully been corporatized yet, um, there are kind of corporate demands that press us always to be trying to produce more, faster, with more global connections, and so on and so forth. And there, we have to recognize that there are those pressures and say, well, how appropriate is this? Why am I on this Treadmill. Why am I doing things always faster? Why am I feeling that I can't stop and cook a meal and eat it with other people? So you know, I think you're asking exactly the right question. What? Let's explore our. Let's let's explore these questions from the point of view of our desiring and our and what we want. I mean, it reaches its extremes. You see the extremes of that sort of thing in uh, someone like Kevin Warwick at. Uh, Reading University in England, who um, was the first person to implant himself with uh, a small receiver device in the first place, but it was basically a chip that would uh, open doors for him and switch on his computer when he got to the room and ensure that the air conditioning was at the level that he wanted, and uh, then eventually he went to another chip that was more complicated and related directly to what activity of his own body and uh, he's hoping to upgrade again to another chip. It, it's a sort of self-experimentation as a professor of robotics at Reading University. He's, uh, he's drawn his wife into this experiment as well and he wants to see whether they can actually communicate with each other from body to body without any uh, deliberate intention, so they would feel the same emotion or uh, experience the same experience with a body-to-body connection that is wireless, remote, and unconnected to physical speech or seeing each other, etc., now, if you talk to Kevin Warwick, as I have, I've had dinner with him and discussed what he's trying to do, you will find that he sees it entirely in terms of enhancing his own human capabilities. He's doing it because it's possible to do it and because he's fascinated with the possibilities. It's the kind of climbing Everest because it's there kind of argument. And it seems to me that the hubris of... Uh, Western approaches to technology is writ large in that kind of line. It's the desire of ultimate autonomy and human self-upgrading. Uh, well, upgrading. He uses the word himself. He's upgrading himself. No doubt he wants to upload himself eventually, too. Um, but... That seems to me to be an extreme version, and it's articulated in his case, he'll tell you that, I'm not exaggerating a single word, he'll tell you that, but I think that in our ordinary everyday lives, we're often doing that kind of transcendence of our limitations thing, some of which may be appropriate, some of which may be very inappropriate, some of which which may help to produce some of the very strains and stresses that are prevalent i mean again we were hearing from one of you this morning about those kinds of things now if they're not connected then it seems to me to be very strange that they they aren't so uh, i said i didn't have an answer and i can talk for a long time even when i don't have an answer you see him yeah.
1: carl kind of mentioned it these are things that are marketed to us because we want them okay there's no product and this kind of gets to my economic leaning i suppose There's no product that we're forced to buy. These are products we want. They they appeal to some desire. Okay. Now, we can manipulate what people buy by, say, manipulating the price. We talked about oil today. The big problem with the United States is we don't charge enough for oil. There is this externality that's not covered in the price of oil. And so, the, the good side is that allows the poor to own cars and to to buy gas and get around. The bad side is much, many of us are are rich, so we have two or three cars and and over consume. So a lot of this. These are trade-offs that um, we are not prepared to make.
0: Okay, so the the question?
1: The question is, how do you deal with overconsumption? Oh, okay. While making it, for instance, these these technologies. The wonderful thing is that they've been mass marketed to the point where they are cheap enough for the common person. Mm -hmm. So you can say that's fair. But the very fact it's that cheap will cause overconsumption. And too many
0: people will get them and use them. And okay. Anyone who is uh, listening to the recording, I apologize. I can't uh, go through the whole question any longer. Um, and I'm just going to have to um, speak directly to some kind of an answer. So that wasn't for you. That was for them. Um, okay. As uh, a would-be sociologist to uh, an economist, I'm not sure that people buy things because they want them. Or rather, I think that the reasons that they want them is because they have already been shaped to want them in particular ways. There was a time when uh, things were produced and uh, marketers went out to try to sell them to people. Gradually, during the 20th century, we saw the process whereby uh, things that people wanted were translated into things that people need and uh, then actually have a right to. We have a right to um, our Honda presidents, not just automobiles, but now they're making private jets, uh, four-wheel drive vehicles, and Honda is making a whole range of things, several of which I think should be with the nuclear warheads. But anyway... Um, <laughs> The fact is that, uh, I think we could interpret things differently. Contemporary capitalism, geared as it is to consumption and consumerism, successfully, increasingly, is producing consumers. It's producing the consumers for the goods that capitalism is oversupplying to you know, we, we have we would otherwise have gluts. We have to produce consumers for all these goods. So I think the way that I would look at it is that, yes, they are already created desires. And I think we have to, you know, that, that's not to let us off the hook either, because I agreed entirely with what Carl was saying about the desires. Of course, we experience them as desires. But... I want us to ask where those desires are coming from. What are the ways in which, and a long time ago, Jacques Ellul helped us to think about advertising and propaganda long before these things became crucially important at the end of the 20th century. He was a marvelous, prescient thinker, Ellul. He noticed lots of things long before other people did, and uh, I admire him for that. But so... uh, I think the question of uh, desires is much more complicated and I think that we have to ask ourselves what it is about the whole panoply of uh, consumerism that persuades us and encourages us to think that we have certain kinds of needs and, God help us, rights to certain sorts of things. Carl kindly held up those two little, uh, books of mine. I understand postmodernity in terms of the inflation of communications on the one hand and of consumerism on the other. Not in terms of, uh, fanciful French philosophies. I understand it in very concrete terms of a world that we've made. In fact, I see those French philosophies of postmodernism as being produced by a world in which consumerism and communications have become far more important than they were within the old modern world that we used to talk about. And so I'd see consumerism as being one of the defining features of our world. And for all the issues that Christians claim to confront, In today's world, if number one is not consumerism, then I have some serious questions for them. I think the enemy of the Christian church in the 21st century, above and beyond any other enemy, hot-button issues are trivial compared with consumerism, which has already got us. So, you know, I think that the consumerism question is, is a much bigger one, and we can talk economics and uh, sociology. <laughs> Man, that's a difficult question. The question is whether it's a global question or just a North American question. Um, tragically, I think we are successfully exporting the view that it's all right for Christians to collude with consumerism. And I fear that some of the uh, issues that are already arising in worlds that uh, could not have been described as consumerist a few years ago are uh, arising partly because of the exporting of uh, that. Well, it's more than a mentalité or a way of life. It has to do with the very fabric of the uh, political economy and uh, culture of North America, certainly, but... uh, No, it's a a global question. It's not a number one issue in the same way as it is in North America, in some other countries. But that might only be a question of time.